On this podcast, we share a lot of stories and often the mental health aspect of the work we do creeps in. If you think you might be feeling depressed, stressed, anxious, or even overwhelmed, please consider visiting our sponsor, BetterHelp. BetterHelp offers licensed therapists who are trained to listen and help you. And they even have therapists who specifically work with first responders. You just fill out a questionnaire to help assess your specific needs, and then you get matched with a therapist in under 48 hours. You can talk to your therapist in a private and online environment at your convenience. Many first responders work rotating and often odd schedules, so this format makes it really easy to talk to someone when it's convenient for you. If you don't click with your therapist, you can request a new one at no additional charge anytime. Join the 3 million plus people who have taken charge of their mental health with an experienced BetterHelp therapist. Get 10% off your first month at BetterHelp.com backslash roadie. That's BetterHelp.com slash roadie, R-O-A-D-I-E. You can also find the link in the show notes. You gotta find a way to not really forget the memories, but know how to deal with them. On the trolley side, just a little bit of fire left. Like the path, they clear a path. I say, holy cow, they made a path for us. If you put a couple of first responders together in a room, something interesting happens. Before too long, they'll begin sharing stories. They're not trying to one up each other, they're simply finding common ground. I was fortunate enough to serve my community as a paramedic and a firefighter for over 25 years. As you can imagine, during that time, I acquired my fair share of stories about the incidents and the calls I was involved in. I thought I might write a book, but then I decided sharing these stories collectively in a podcast would give anyone listening an insider's view into the work that first responders do every single day. These are the stories of the men and women who courageously serve the public or as I like to call them, Stories from the Road. Welcome back to Stories from the Road. I'm your host, Phil Klein. And on the podcast today, I am I am proud to be joined by Chief Linda. And we were just talking about this a minute ago. I think she is the highest ranking female firefighter I've had on the podcast. And I'm trying to remember how many other female firefighters we've had on the podcast. I know the number's uh, not high, if any. So uh, Chief Linda, thank you for being here. Uh, Chief's been with the, with the fire department for 32 years out in California. Uh, she retired in 2016. She's held all the ranks. She's been a firefighter, a uh, fire apparatus engineer. She's been a captain, a battalion chief, a division chief. Um, she has fought structure fires. She's fought wildland fires. She's, she's pretty much done it all. And she's got a really interesting story that she's going to share with us today. And from that story, she wrote a book, and it's called Solving the Post-Traumatic Stress Brain Injury Puzzle, a First Responder's GPS. And that's available on Amazon. We'll leave a link to that in the show notes. But Chief, I'm going to stop talking. I'm going to turn the mic over to you because I'm really excited to hear this story, and I'll let you share your story from the road. Awesome, Phil. Thank you for uh, having me as a guest. So to start with my background, you already mentioned all the ranks I've held. But one of the questions you had was, how did I even get started doing this? Basically, it was a summer job to help pay for college. My original goal was to be a veterinarian. So I needed college money, and Cal Fire, what's known as now as Cal Fire, they hire seasonal firefighter positions for the wildland fire season. And I was interested in it. I'd been an athlete throughout junior high and high school. And I believe I had the ability to do the job. 
and it paid pretty good money. I must admit, it's a lot better pay than flipping burgers at McDonald's or anything like that. So I got hired, and I did the job for about three summers. I was struggling in college, and then it dawned on me that I was actually good at this. <laughs> so I pivoted from being a veterinarian because I wasn't really good at the higher-end science stuff that you need to do that. And I changed colleges, started studying fire science at the local junior college. And once I committed to getting into the fire service, and my goal always was Cal Fire, but I took all the classes, I went to seminars, uh, I tested around the region with, you know, city, county, federal fire departments, if nothing else, for the experience of going through the interview process, doing the, you know, the field testing, all that. And eventually, it took about three years, but I finally got on with the department as what originally was a limited term fire apparatus engineer. So it was a temporary position for the summer, but it was definitely a, a bump in pay, definitely a bump in responsibility, uh, two weeks academy time to learn how to drive the engine, you know, run the pumps and all that. And I spent the summer doing that. Uh, the following year, I got hired permanently, and that was 1986. That launched the beginning of what turned into my 32-year career. Like you said, I've held all the ranks. Uh, I've done things on command teams, management teams, whatever they want to call them nowadays. Um, you know, everything, structure fires, vehicle fires, medical aids, car wrecks, gnarly extrications, been on flood responses, earthquakes pretty much any natural disaster that California gets hit with, I've been to. So that's that's the background. How many earthquakes did you respond to? Because I'm, I'm thinking for folks listening in any other area of the country, that's probably not a call that they run all the time. <laughs> uh, the, the one I did respond to that was pretty major was back in 1989, the Loma Prieta earthquake that hit the Bay Area. Uh, I was assigned as part of the plan section uh my assignment was at, in Oakland at the Cypress Structure Collapse, which was the two-story bridge that pancaked on itself. By the time I got there, there were like three days into the into the rescue and extrication process. Uh, Oakland Fire was just totally worn out. They'd been going nonstop for three days. Their organization wasn't stellar by any means, not that they weren't getting the job done. But they needed help, and so we came in, Cal Fire, and helped get things organized, started getting people some rest cycles. So, um, and then it, it was really weird because sleeping in the parking lot of the city park we were at, you know, there's still aftershocks going on. Uh, it, it was surreal, absolutely. And I remember it to this day. So I bet. I bet. Well, go on and, uh, and share the story that you uh, – Came on the podcast to share. I'm really looking forward to hearing it. I know it's a it's a tough one, but I'm I'm looking forward to hearing it. So so the basic story was 2015, a year before I retired. We had locally we had a really hectic fire season going on. Just seemed like we got hit by major fire after major fire after major fire. Um, and that what started in like June. It kept going in July and on into August. By the end of August, I mean, we were tired, but we still had really good spirits. Uh, you know, the unit 
that I worked in at the time, Sonoma Lake Napa unit, had really done a really good job. And people were engaged, uh, had some good saves. There were some rescue opportunities, um, evacuations that worked well. And oddly enough, uh, I was the duty chief for most of those major fires. I happened to be on duty for three out of four of the major fires that we got hit with. And my role as the duty chief was to work with our command center, which is our dispatch center, help coordinate with region office, get the resources we needed, uh, deal with some of the political aspects of major fires. Not necessarily glamorous by any means, but absolutely necessary. And that's how it went. Like I said, those three months, uh, right at the beginning of September, we had another fire. And again, I was a duty chief. It was right on the border with the National Forest. They were already really busy throughout Northern California chasing lightning fires. So they asked for our assistance to manage that fire. And I got reassigned to do that. Uh, so it got me out of the office, which I was always grateful for. And uh, that one, that fire actually behaved itself. Um, it, it burned like things typically burn in this part of, of the state, end of August. And it took us a few days, but we got pretty well wrapped up, kept our costs down. And by that weekend, I was ready for a good weekend off. I needed to get help my neighbor out. Um, his wife was ill. And I was, and I was actually in a good mood. Uh, that Saturday morning of September 12th, and uh, which is when the real, real meat of, of this fire of my story got started. So September 12th of 2015 uh, was actually a cloudy day. There's a lot of high-level moisture, um, no forecast of winds, higher humidity. If anything got started locally, we didn't expect it to do too much. About mid-afternoon, I noticed my pager had gone off, and I started paying attention to the radio traffic. And a uh, local battalion chief, about the time I turned on my portable radio to listen to what was going on, he was asking for another chief officer. So I, I called into our command center. There's another chief officer that lives closer than I do, but he was out of the area. So I went ahead and responded. I had to crest the ridge to drop down into where the spire was burning. And based on the smoke column I could see coming up, which was going straight up, didn't look like I had any wind on it. I wasn't anticipating anything major to come out of this fire. I thought we had a good shot at holding it to one of the major roads that went through the area. And so I met up with the battalion chief at the side of the road to do a transition. And just to be clear, we're talking about a forest fire because I know most folks that are listening are probably thinking structure fire at this point, but these are forest fires that we're talking about. That's correct. This part of California is highly prone to vegetation fires throughout the summer. And we had uh, several of these larger fires that burned for days. You know, we had one that burned 8,000 acres in like the first three hours. So, you know, that's pretty extreme rate of spread. So, yeah, th thanks for asking for that clarification. Like I said, I met with the battalion chief to do a transition so he could focus on operations and I would deal with the rest of the fire organization. And in the midst of that transition, this is a battalion chief I've worked with for years. I've known him since he was a young engineer and he just seemed a little bit off. And when I asked what was going on, uh, he basically, well, did you hear the Mayday traffic? 
And I said no, because I didn't hear it. It must have come over the TAC frequency, and I didn't hear it. So he told me what was going on. Uh, basically, our Helitac crew was in the middle of a burnover situation. They were in their fire shelters, and they had called a mayday. So I told him, you go find them. I'll take the fire. And he went one direction, and I went the other. Can you can you explain a little bit what happened there? Um, fire shelters, the uh, the situation that we're in, just kind of clarify that because I think some of us listening, even me, I have an idea of what they what just happened, but maybe you can just clarify that for someone that may not be familiar with this type of firefighting. Uh, certainly. So, in vegetation fires, uh, some of our basic protective gear includes a fire shelter, which is basically a pup tent that's covered with aluminum. And if you get cut off from a good escape route or a good safety zone, it is basically your last opportunity of safety to get into that shelter while a fire burns over you and the shelter is designed to reflect the radiant heat. It's still hot and smoky inside. For the most part, people who have enough time to get into the shelter, they may have smoke inhalation, they may be really hot, but... Most of the time, people come out of that uh, intact. You know, they might spend a day in a hospital, the night in a hospital for, you know, treatment for the smoke inhalation. But most of the time, it's it's not a critical incident. But part part of this health attack crew found themselves, they've been cut off from their escape route because the fire rapidly intensified right then. The helicopter is off getting a bucket of water about three miles away. By the time he got back over site, he couldn't find them in the midst of of the uh, smoke and the fire. And so he was just circling around trying to find them. And that's all that was going on just as I arrived at scene. Battalion chief went off to find them. I took command of the fire. I kept driving. I hadn't really gotten a good size up. And size up is size up regardless what type of fire you're on. You still got to get eyes on the scope of the fire. As soon as I went around the next bend in the road, then that's when I realized that there was a lot of wind on this fire. hadn't been visible from that higher perspective I had, but I got on that backside of that ridge, and all of a sudden, you talk about smoke velocity. We had smoke velocity. The embers were blowing across the road, and they were good-sized embers, not just little sparks. Uh, when I looked off to the left side of the road, there, there was a meadow on the left side of the road, it had multiple, multiple spot fires throughout that meadow, plus the fire, the main fire was still on, on the right of the road. And I kept driving. I wanted to get through that smoke, get out to the other side. And I was actually surprised at how long it took me and how far I had to drive down the road to get out of that, that smoke with that velocity. I was about a quarter mile down the road before I got the clean air and I could turn around and look back at that meadow and realize what a mess <laughs> I had just arrived at. And of course, in the midst of all this, I had to notify uh, the command center that we had a mayday situation going on, and I had to have radio discipline because uh, I don't care what fire agency you work for, people tend to talk fires out. So I had to demand that, and I got it, and then I realized... This fire was going to go a lot bigger than what the resources that had already been ordered 
the battalion chief had already ordered basically a second alarm. And so I got aggressive with my order and basically went straight to a fifth alarm for structural firefighter purposes. Uh, I'll build it. I'll just frame it as that. And then I started wondering why I, ha- why I hadn't heard the radio traffic on attack frequency. Uh, that was, you know, believe it or not, chiefs make mistakes too. And I was still running on the attack frequency from the day when the fire was on the day before. I hadn't gone back to the was our normal attack frequency for that area. So I switched my radio traffic back over real quick. And by then I heard the other division chief showing up and he grew up in that neighborhood. So he knew all the back roads and uh, he was in contact with the captain that was involved with the burnover who was describing their surroundings. And it sounded like the second battalion division chief actually had a good idea where they were at. So I felt comfortable that they were going to get these guys in short order and we would get on with, you know, fighting the fire. I'm still sitting on the side of the road doing my command stuff and I see his truck go by with the firefighters in the back. And so I know that they've been extracted from their situation. And then our unit chief, who is like the highest chief in our uh, area, he calls me up. He wants me to place a phone call. I know what he. I know the information he wants. He wants. He wants to talk about what's the potential of this particular fire, but he also wants an update on the injuries to the firefighters. So I caught up with where they had been taken to for treatment, and that's when I realized that they were messed up. Uh, the captain had very serious burn injuries, basically third degree burns to both hands. The firefighters. Uh, weren't quite as badly burned. Uh, Actually, a couple of them were back at work within two months. Um, But it was a very surreal movie-like scene. I felt like I was at, you know, Full Metal Jacket or or something really heavy like that. And that's where my PTSD got born. Um, The captain that was burned, we actually used to be partners we were station captains together. Uh, the firefighters had worked in my battalion when I was battalion chief, so I knew them, and and that's what made it personal. Uh, these these are not just you know we have seven hundred people in this unit, and I don't know all of them by any means, but these people I knew, and and that's where the PTSD came from. Now they got flown out. They got uh, we have a policy that all burn in- injuries of that magnitude go directly to a burn center and the air ambulance that came in to help treat them. He knew the policy. I just reminded him of it while, while I was there. And then I went and placed that phone call to the unit chief and told him what was going on. As I was re-engaging with the fire, I left where they were at. They were in good hands. They had paramedics on scene. More were coming in to help take care of them. And I had to go back and deal with the fire. Probably within 10 minutes of leaving where they were at, I started having symptoms, early symptoms of my PTSD. My brain is trying to dissociate. Uh, somewhere along the line, I had a panic attack, none of which made, made any sense to me. It's like, why is this happening? But, you know, I just, 
eventually got myself centered again so I could totally focus on what I needed to do. And that was to basically help coordinate the evacuation of half a county over the next two hours. Because this fire took off uh, shortly thereafter, and it was off to the races. Um, Sooner or later, we figured out that we had 50-plus mile-an-hour winds pushing this fire, which had not been forecast. It just eliminated any idea that we're going to capture this fire that day. Our primary focus at that point became evacuations, coordinating with local law enforcement. And, and certainly a incident management team got activated in short order. And uh, But I was still the IC until the following morning, dealing with our local utility company, trying to get the power shut off because this is a remote area. It's not just a matter of flipping a switch in some computer database to make that happen. So we had utility guys out there manually shutting down power lines. So they were at risk. Uh, The firefighters were out doing the best that they could for structure protection. They were definitely at risk. I already had four firefighters get burned. Eventually, a total of five civilian fatalities. No other firefighters got hurt. But it was a very dynamic situation that night. (laughs) And... uh, it's one of those things you always wonder how you're going to respond when you get that career fire. It wasn't exactly the career fire I was looking for, but uh, I got through it, managed, like I said, we lost five people. That was the downside of it because the fire exploded so fast. I think within, by nightfall, probably four of them had perished. Um, and then the fifth person, they, they never found him and uh, finally declared him, in California, you have to wait five years, but they finally declared him dead uh, about a year ago. So that's kind of what got me into having PTSD. It, it was a rough night. Yeah, it, so- it sounds like it. And oddly enough, and this is something maybe your audience isn't aware of, but when you have something like that, it may not just be one person who ends up with PTSD. I know of at least six or eight other people that have been on that fire that also ended up with PTSD. They all had different viewpoints. They all had different perspectives, different things. That's what triggered them. But you have a major incident like that. It can really cause a lot of issues in, in a department. So just one of those lessons learned. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the what you described and then knowing these guys and knowing how much danger they were in and even not knowing immediately because, you, like you said, you were on the wrong tack channel. You didn't hear the initial May Day traffic go over. Um, and then having to, you know, you're almost surprised by that information. Then you have to immediately react to it. I can certainly see how that can affect you. And, you know, it's that it's that overwhelming response all at once. And you didn't even get a chance to follow the steps, right? So you didn't get the, hey, the fire is getting big and now we've got a May Day and we're taking cover and kind of build up to it. You know, you jumped right in at, you know, hey, we've got we've got four guys injured and we're going to go try and find them. So I, I certainly can understand that. Tell me a little bit about what you've done, uh, you know, post your career, I guess, right? So you've written about this this incident, I guess, and you've written about how you've overcome it, if, if I'm if I'm reading the notes correctly. Is that right? Well, it's interesting. Um, I wasn't initially diagnosed with PTSD. Um, Certainly, I was feeling anxiety. I wasn't sleeping. I finally went to see my doctor about the insomnia. 
And she's one who, who referred me to a therapist. And even when I went to see the therapist, even she didn't think I had PTSD. But basically, anxiety, yes. So we're dealing with the anxiety for several months. I was feeling better by the next spring. But then things started happening again around around the local area. A local sheriff's officer uh, got killed off duty in a tragic, tragic cir- circumstance. And I couldn't figure out why. I was driving out to be part of the procession to bring him home, you know, honoring our, our cooperators. Um, and I couldn't figure out why I was crying. I mean, I knew who he was. I didn't know him that well. But, you know, I was crying out while I was driving out there. A few weeks later, again, I was the duty officer. There was a vehicle accident involving one of our uh, crew transports. Fortunately, nobody got hurt, but it could have killed or seriously injured about eight members of the department. Uh, and then finally, in May of 2016, an- another member of the department who had just retired like five months earlier had a massive heart attack and died. So this was all right at the beginning of fire season. And my my symptoms really uh, escalated from that point on. I started being paranoid, startle response. I mean, it, it was crazy. I thought I was going crazy. But I thought going on vacation at the end of June would help. It didn't. Uh, <laughs> we, we're, uh, we go RVing, me and my husband. And so we're going to a, a group camp out with other de- members of the department that are retired. And we're driving through the uh, burn scar of one of the fires from the previous summer. And a burn scar basically... It takes a few years for Mother Nature to heal itself, and, but so there's still dead brush on this hillside, and driving by that just reminded me of all the fires, and my husband was driving, thank God. I don't, don't know if he knows I was having a panic attack, <laughs> but that's how that vacation started, and then uh, I had an appointment with my therapist right after vacation before I went back on duty. And I told her about all these uh, new symptoms that had popped up in the three weeks since we had last met. And at that point, she said, well, you have PTSD. And let's get to work. So what happened for the rest of the year adds to the story, and it's part of the story of the book. I didn't tell anybody at work right away that I had PTSD. Um, I was working in the front office just trying to do what a good supervisor does and keep all the different programs I had charge of, keep those things up and running. And at first, I felt like I could manage my symptoms and still do the job. But the deeper we got into fire season, the worse it got. And finally, I started having like daily panic attacks and I missed a week of work. And then I finally showed up for work. I needed to do my timesheet, if nothing else, that day. And my supervisor came into my office basically to tell me that uh, it doesn't seem like you want to be here anymore. And before he could go any further, I finally said, listen, I've just been diagnosed with PTSD. It's not that I don't want to be here. It's just I don't feel right. And then he started talking about people that we both knew that had retired or died shortly after retirement. And it's one of the weird things, one of my triggers with my PTSD was the mention of death. 
So he's talking about all these dead people, just triggering me right and left. And so I'm having a panic attack in my own office and finally convince him. Basically, I start ignoring him and he leaves, sticks his head back in my office with one parting thought about why don't you just retire? Why don't you just go home? Which was a great idea. And I've been making phone calls to people I knew uh, with our employee support service who recommended I call a program for PTSD and first responders. And finally, on, on the drive home, I made that call uh, because I had, you know, panic attacks are no fun, especially when they last for an hour. And I didn't know where else to turn. So, so I made the call to get into a program. And the guy called me back because uh, I had left a message. So he called me back. Yeah, we can get you in. You qualify. It'll be like eight months down the road because they had such a backlog. It's okay, fine. I went to see my therapist the next week. And basically by then, it's like I can't go back to work. I can't work for that guy. So I took six weeks off from work because I needed to heal. What I didn't know is every time I drove to work in order to get to my office, I had to drive through that fire area going to work and coming. It didn't matter which route I took. The fire had been so big, I just had constant reminders of the fire going to and from work. And so I was basically being triggered going to work and being triggered coming home from work. And it just wasn't healing. <laughs> so I had to take the time off. Uh, I eventually did go back to finish the last uh, six weeks of my career. It's not the way I wanted to retire uh, injured like that. And so I spent like the first year of my retirement still in significant amount of therapy, doing EMDR healing, basically, getting some, trying to get caught up on sleep. So trying to do all that and figure out what you're going to do as a new retiree, it gets complicated. <laughs> and, and, ha and having that total lack of sense of self very confusing. The, the pivot around all this was shortly after the fire, you know, I felt like I was stuck in a rut. And one of the ways I'd always gotten out of a rut, because they happen every now and then to everybody, um, for me it was either travel or go learn something new. So I decided to learn something new. That There was an online person that I had learned how to be a lot more productive as a chief officer from. And so I started seeing what he was up to, and uh, he's in the personal development space. So I started paying attention to what uh, he was doing, took a couple classes from him, which was helping, helping me function at work because I was using all the tools I was learning. Eventually, I actually hired a coach through his program and learned even more tools. So it's even more functional, which was actually masking a lot of my symptoms because I was so functional at work until the wheels came off. But then after I started healing again, I got re-engaged with that coaching program, got hired for another round of coaching that helped quite a bit. And then I got really curious, what was about that coaching program that helped me so much? And in 2017, yeah, 2017, I got certified in, in that coaching program as a high-performance coach because I wanted to know what tools. And then over the next year or so, it became 
well, what part of this can help other people with PTSD or depression or anxiety or, you know, just trying to deal with the stress of the job. And the, the book came about because that night of the fire, I was standing in front of one of our local fire stations at our uh, command post thinking there, there's a story to be told here. And at that time, I didn't know uh, how bad the firefighters were injured. The early reports was not as bad as what I had seen. And so I gave them the benefit of the doubt until the news came out, just how bad it was. But, you know, there, there's a book here or there's, you know, something that can come out of this. A couple weeks after the fire, meeting with a couple other people, somebody else started talking about a book and said, yeah, you know, I actually have an idea for a book, which is not what eventually got developed. Part of it is. Part of it was telling the story of the fire. Not to the detail I wanted it, but I did a lot of research. Uh, on radio. You know, I listened to hours of radio traffic just to remind myself of some of the key points because there's so much information flowing over the airwaves at that time. I couldn't keep up with the note-taking I normally do. It's like, how did I know where they were at? How did I know that? It's like, not a clue because it wasn't in my notes. So um, that actually turned out to be healing even though a lot of people thought I was nuts for doing it, but it's basically, it was basically uh, a form of exposure therapy I was hearing the story over and over and over again and putting together my narrative, which is very scattered because normally I have a really great memory and I can write my post incident notes and they actually make sense. And they're a decent sequence, but the ones I had turned in were all over the place and how they ever made sense of them, I don't know. But but going through that really helped me get clear on the timeline and the time frame of how certain things came down. So that became part of the book. One of the things I had started doing before I got diagnosed with PTSD, I had started to keep a gratitude journal. It turned out that gratitude journal turned into a uh, let's track how Linda is feeling journal and going back through it, I could tell where I started to nosedive into worsening condition. So some of the elements of that journal are in there. The second journal I started caught more of the recovery story. So that was in there. Then there's a whole section in there. It's like I wanted to address, you know, I kind of hit a lot of different things in that book, uh, any one of which could be separated out. Uh, it's like I wanted to talk about the stigma. So I did some research into to see if if there was something coming down the pipeline as far as being able to take a test to confirm whether or not you have PTSD. They're getting close. You know, they have identified blood markers for stress and with like 90% accuracy. And this is you know, this was in uh, 2019 when I wrote that section of the book. That was the last piece I wrote. There's some sleep studies that are pushing 95%. Uh, it's actually one on my agenda this year to so go back and look at that and see how close they're getting to gain that out in, in the field. Um, because part of the stigma is not believing you have PTSD. So you have some internal stigma around it. And then obviously there's the external stigma of people not believing you. It's like you're malingering. 
which I think where my boss was coming from I was malingering by in his eyes. But I think if you can get to the point where you can say, I think you have PTSD, let's go get a blood test and confirm the diagnosis. Or let's go have you do this sleep study and confirm the diagnosis. Then it makes it easier to buy into the work you need to do to recover. Yeah, I think that would be... uh... That would be an amazing tool to diagnose folks with PTSD. Well, Linda, as we as we wrap this up, any closing closing thoughts you wanna you wanna throw out there? Any closing words? Yeah, the the, the big thing with PTSD, and um, certainly firefighters, paramedics, all first responders suffer from PTSD and occupational stress at a much higher rate than the average person in the public. It's like 30, 35%, depending on which study you look at. So if you have PTSD or you think you have PTSD, the big takeaway from this is you can get better. You know, you worked hard to get the job. If you put the same amount of effort into recovering from the stress and recovering from the PTSD, you can get back to enjoying your life again. You may have scars. You know, I, I have, I call them scars. They're things that still trigger me. Uh, I still deal with depression, um, but I have learned things that help me get through it. Uh, the big thing is to accept the diagnosis, and that's where I see a lot of people getting in trouble, is they don't accept the diagnosis, and then they ignore it, or they just you know, do the alcohol, or they take cannabis because they don't want to deal with the therapy. Well, the therapy is only one piece of the of the recovery process. You're only in therapy for an hour a week if you're lucky. It's what you do the other 167 hours of the week that makes the difference. So putting together the tools that you need for that is the real the real power of recovery. Well, I think that's a great way to close out the podcast. So Linda, thank you for being here. Thank you for sharing your incredible story. And I really hope that you will come back at a future date and tell some other stories. I, I just, in listening to you, I know you had an amazing career and I, I have a feeling that there is a bucket full of stories and I want to, I want to hear a bunch of them. So I hope you'll come back and, and share some more with our listeners at a later date. Oh, that'd be fun to actually talk about the fun stuff because let's be real. The job is fun. It absolutely is. If you enjoyed this podcast, please take a minute and give us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or whichever podcast platform you enjoy. Stories from the Road is a Brown Dogs Media Group production. This one-man show is written, edited, and produced by Phil Klein. Show notes are written by Jennifer Rowick. If you have a story you would like to share, please contact us at storiesfromtheroadpodcast at gmail.com. To learn more about this show, please visit storiesfromtheroadpodcast.com. Thank you for listening.